Wonderful to see so many out this morning, see a few faces that we haven't seen too much of lately. Glad for everybody's being here and, and being back and all of those grateful for everybody who's watching us from home. It is no secret, and no I'm not starting to sing that old hymn as a solo. It is no secret on Wednesday nights we are currently involved in a study of the book of James. And when we consider that book, one of the first themes uh, that often comes to mind is out of verses two and following where it says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And he goes on from there to explain why. However, there is another New Testament epistle. Another New Testament epistle which opens, or in its opening verses, has a very similar wording of that same theme, and which also goes into great detail and specificity on that subject throughout the rest of the book, and that is the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you want to open there with me, that would be wonderful. We'll just kind of introduce why I say what I said. To begin with, Peter is a lot like James in that he is writing to those Christians, just like James, who, has been, who have been scattered or dispersed. We see that in verses one and two. Like James, in 1 Peter 1, six through nine, Peter makes a very similar statement about how our various trials, that is the same exact phrase that we see James use in James 1 and verse two, various trials. In 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, Peter makes that statement about how our various trials are an absolutely essential necessity in order to grow our faith, in order to grow our reliance and dependence upon Almighty God. We also, as we read those verses, we see that joy again. You remember James said, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Well, right here in, in 1 Peter, Chapter one, verses six through nine, and particularly verse eight, we see that joy mentioned as a part of those various trials. Now, from chapter one, Peter then goes on throughout the rest of the book to go into pretty great detail and discussion of some of those trials and how to deal with them. Not only how to deal with them, but how to find that joy and peace and contentment that God wants us to have throughout them. For example, and you can just follow along here until we get to the fourth chapter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 12, he talks about the trial of having others speak against you sometimes as being an evildoer. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 14, he talks about suffering and even mentions being threatened by others, quote, for righteousness sake or for doing the right thing and, and how blessed a Christian is, if ever and whenever that is truly the case. If you look down another verse or two, down in verse 16 of chapter three, he confirms that even though some may defame you as evildoers and revile your good conduct in Christ, don't worry about it, don't let it get you down, don't let it get you down because as he says in verse 17 right after that, for it's better, it is better 
If it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you go down into chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, he talks about how there's going to be a lot of people that may think that it's strange. Maybe in the context they're old friends with whom you used to do a lot of things that Christians shouldn't be doing. But he talks about how some are going to think it's strange that you don't join them in this same flood of dissipation or those same activities that are ungodly, and they speak evil of you. But he says, that's okay. Don't worry. Don't fret. Because they're going to have to answer to God for that. He tells us that. And then he kind of wraps up this theme that he started in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 about trials with this wonderful little synopsis of the fiery trials that he has been alluding to throughout and the abundant joy that God makes possible to abound while we are in the very heart of our trials with what he writes in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16. Here's kind of the caboose on the train that started in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Just keep throwing that joy right out there in the midst of those trials. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. What a blessing that is, he says. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. Now remember, some of them had been accused of being evildoers. They weren't. This is don't suffer as a legitimate evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So he takes you from chapter 1 to chapter 4, and he talks about some of these difficulties that you will face as a Christian and how to have joy in them. But in all due honesty, if we really think about it, we, we can see the words and we know they're true. We know they're true because they're Bible, okay? We know they're divinely inspired. We know in our heads that these words are true. But the kind of earthly fact of the matter is that some days the reality of that joy when we're in the midst of those trials doesn't seem to be the norm always. When we're in the middle of that struggle, that joy doesn't always seem to be this, this reality that we know it ought to be and we can see that God says it should be. Even for the most faithful of Christians in the most difficult of those trials. And you know, perhaps one of the most effective keys to changing that lies in the one passage which deals with this subject which I purposefully left out and failed to mention in that previous list. It is, it is one text out of 1 Peter that we need to really take apart, then take to heart. I believe this one passage is the key to experiencing that joy in those trials. This passage therefore serves as a centerpiece of this morning's sermon and it is in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 19 through 24. Title of this morning's lesson being, He Entrusted Himself to Him Who Judges Righteously. 
Follow along with me in 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 19. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Not just suffering, but suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? That's to be expected. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Powerful text. And I want to kind of take a look at it this morning backwards. I want to start in verse 24 and kind of go backwards. Notice in verse 24 that Jesus came and died for our sins, that we might die to our sins, and thereafter live for righteousness. But here's the irony of that, if you will. Yes, we are to thereafter live for righteousness. That same righteousness for which the Apostle Peter says throughout the book that we will have to endure wrongful suffering, undeserved grief, and sometimes accusations of being an evildoer. But that's okay. That's okay. That's okay because it's to be expected. That's what Peter is telling these people. It's okay because we know how to handle those trials righteously. And the reason we know how to handle those trials righteously is because Jesus came and showed us exactly how it's done. That's what it says right here in the text. Jesus suffered those same exact things that Peter's talked about. And at the same time, he committed no sin, nor was de deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to God, verses 22 and 3. There's our example. There it is. Boom. Peter says, this is your example. Here it is. Notice Jesus never sinned. We know that. Jesus never deceived with his mouth. We know that. And yet he was still reviled. He was still rejected. He still suffered a firestorm of false accusations. And I guess I hadn't considered that quite as much as when I sat down and actually, have you ever counted how many times in just one of the Gospels that this happened to Jesus, that he was accused of something other than doing God's will? Think about this. I, I look through Matthew. Skim through the whole Gospel, and this is what I come up with just out of Matthew. In Matthew 9, 3, you can follow along. If you want to turn to Matthew, they're, right, they're in sequence. There's not that many of them if you want to. In Matthew 9, 3, at the very least in the minds of the scribes, he was falsely accused of committing blasphemy. Did Jesus ever blaspheme? 
No, he was God in the flesh. He didn't blaspheme. But he was accused of it. Blasphemy was one of the highest forms of disrespect to God as far as the first century Jew was concerned. And again, in Matthew 9, 3, in the scribes' minds at least, he was a blasphemer. In that same chapter, in Matthew 9 and verse 24, Jesus is ridiculed for stating a truth that they couldn't see. She's not dead, he said. In Matthew 9 and verse 34, this one really blows my mind. In Matthew 9 and verse 34, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is accused of driving out demons, excuse me, demons, by the power of Satan, by the ruler of the demons. In other words, at the very least, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is accused of being in Satan's camp, at the very least, if not being Satan himself. You're the creator of the universe. You can speak worlds into existence. And somebody has the audacity to say you're the devil? You know, we talk about Jesus being tempted in Matthew 4. I think there were a lot of times in his ministry he may have been tempted to do something that wasn't really within the will of God. In Matthew 12 and verse 2, the Pharisees accused Jesus of letting his disciples break the law on the Sabbath. It was a baseless charge based upon their lack of proper application of the scriptures, as Jesus goes on to point out in verses 3 through 8. In Matthew 12 and verse 10, they ask him a question to entrap him, and when he answers by speaking the truth in love, they go out and seek to plot how to destroy him, verses 11 through 14. In Matthew 12, 24, he's once again falsely accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons by the power of Satan or the ruler of demons. We know he didn't do that, but that's what he's accused of. And in Matthew 26, in verse 59, it tells us that the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony. They looked for people to lie about him, for false testimony, it says, to put him to death. And eventually, by twisting some of the truth that he taught, they were eventually able to fabricate something they thought would stick to destroy him. This man said he'd build the temple, uh, said that he'd tear down the temple and build it again in three days. Do you know something? Sorry, I'm sure, I know you know something. Did you know this? <laughs> Even after they got rid of him, they still lied about him, called him a deceiver in Matthew 26 and verse 63. Now, the point of this sermon is not, is not at all to point out that they falsely accused Jesus. We all know that, okay? The point of this sermon is also not to point out that he promised that all of his faithful followers would face the same sufferings he did. He told us that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 22, Luke chapter 6, 22 through 26, John 15, 18 through 16, and verse 3. He basically said, hey, they're going to do this to you. They did it to me, they're going to do it to you. So that's not the point of the sermon either. Here's what the point of today's sermon is. How much clearer can I make it, right? Here's the point of the sermon. Did you ever notice how, despite his continually having to put up with those things, 
You very seldom see Jesus Christ putting up with that on a daily basis. You very seldom see Jesus down, depressed, discouraged. You just don't see him typically. Now, there's once he gets angry here or there, but, but overall, despite this constant bombardment, you never see Jesus getting discouraged and depressed. You don't see him getting down. You don't typically see Jesus with anything other than joy and peace and contentment despite all of that. Have you ever noticed that? How did he do that? How on earth did Jesus do that? Peter says, you're all going to suffer these things. Our example is Jesus. He did too. But as I look at that, I say, he's always content. He's always got joy. He's all, How did he do it? And that's the point of today's sermon. How did he do that? Because <laughs> we need to know, because he said these same, the, the reason that's so important is because he said those same things are going to happen to us. Again, Matthew 10, 16 through 22, Luke 6, 22 through 26, John 15, 18 through 16, 3, and 1 Peter, as we talked about at the introduction of this sermon. How are we, instead of getting down, discouraged, and depressed, supposed to have that same joy and peace and contentment if we have to ever endure those things? The key is right here in 1 Peter. In our key text that we're going to look at this morning, verse 23, here it comes. Again, who when he was reviled did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed, oh, this is so important, that's why it's the the uh, title of our sermon. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. The English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version both do a little bit better job of explaining the ongoing tense here than the New King James. This is the way those two versions put it, and you can see this. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued. See, it's an ongoing thing, entrusting himself. That's the English standard. The New American Standard Version says, kept entrusting himself. Instead, the way Jesus did it, always had joy, always had peace, always had contentment. Didn't matter. How did he do it? Here's how he did it. You ready? It's very simple. Instead of letting their words discourage him, depress him, or frustrate him, he continually kept on committing himself to God's word and God's will. And that was the difference. I want to break down this verse this morning, verse 23, a little bit by looking at three key things. Three, which Jesus committed himself to in committing himself to God. All three of these ultimately led to his continually, no matter what, having that joy and peace and contentment and confidence. Right in the middle of all the rejection and the reviling, false accusations against him. Number one, so important, all three of these are vital. Number one, he never stopped living for and being obedient to the full will of God 
no matter what. Period. Boom. End of point one, not quite. He stayed committed to doing what God said no matter what anybody else said. Same thing Peter actually tells us in 1 Peter. Look in chapter 4 and verse 17. He said, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, that is, for standing only on the truth of God's word in whatever circumstance, he said, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Notice the word commit. Jesus committed or entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Peter says that's the secret for us. Committing our souls to him and continuing to do good because God is faithful. That's, that's number one. No matter what, stay faithful to God. Let God's word continue to rule your life. Even if, if obeying God's word and doing God's will causes people that you used to be friends with before you were a Christian to think evil of you or call you evildoers or whatever the case may be, even though it is, it is being faithful to the word of God that got you there, keep on being faithful to the word of God. That's, that's Peter's point, number one. Same thing that the Apostle Paul at least alluded to in Romans 8, 31 through 33 when he said this. He said, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not freely with him give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God that matters. No matter what anybody says, it's God that matters. So Jesus never stopped living for and obedi being obedient to the full will of God no matter what. Did you know that from the very earliest stages of his ministry, right up through to the end, Jesus made very clear, very clear, he was here for one thing and one thing only, and that was to do God's will. All those times up through Matthew where we read that, that they called him, the, you know, that he drives out demons by the, the ruler of demons, and all of those, he blasphemes, and all, right in the middle of all of that, you know what Jesus was doing? One thing. Same thing he came and started doing, the same thing he ended his ministry doing. I'm going to do God's will no matter what. For example, Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus didn't care what Satan said. All he cared about was what God said. And he said, that's, that's, that's all there is to it. John 4, 24, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus said, that's, that's all I'm living for, is to do God's will. John 5 and verse 30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Over and over, you know, it didn't even matter. It didn't even matter when it came to what his own family might have thought or said or wanted. God's word and will were all that mattered to Jesus. Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. Mark 3, 31 through 35. And Luke 8, 19 through 21. And of course, as we're all familiar, right up through, not only did it, did it start out in his very first recorded gospel sermon, Matthew 4 and verse 4 through 10, that it is written, and he was only here to do the will of God, as he said early on in John chapter 6. But this was the whole, the expanse of his whole ministry. What did he say in the garden that night? 
Three times he prayed that that be taken from him, that cup. But if not, your will, not mine. This extended throughout his whole ministry. That's all he was concerned about. And don't miss this. His complete commitment in trusting himself to God, his complete commitment to carrying out only the word of God in his life, no matter what anybody else had to say about it, correlated exactly to the joy and the peace and the security and the comfort that Jesus exuded and lived and enjoyed throughout his entire life. Listen, if you know you're doing the will of God, can you be content with that? Jesus was. That's where his joy was. They could call him the son of Satan if they wanted to, but he knew he was the son of God and he could maintain joy. He even informed his disciples of his joy the night before he was crucified. And I know I, I made kind of a mention, maybe a big deal of this in, in the adult class this morning, but so many times that final night, Jesus talked about joy. Now listen, I don't know what the worst trial of your life is, was, will be, but I know that if I'm facing the biggest trial in my life, the night before that, I'm probably not sleeping a whole bunch. And probably the last thing I'm doing as a human being is being, oh goody, tomorrow I get to supper. But Jesus Christ that night kept talking about his joy. Over and over and over again. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And as Joel said this morning, if your joy is full, there's no room for anything else. That's the night before he's arrested, scourged, beaten, crucified. We know the drill. He says in John 17, verses 13 and 14, as he prayed to his heavenly father before them, he said, but now, talking to God, he says, I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He said, I want them to have this joy. God, I'm coming to you. They're coming for me. I'm coming to you. I'm gonna lay my life down. I know what I'm going, John 18, verse four, Jesus knew everything he was gonna suffer. And he was just so full of joy, he couldn't stand it. He said, I want them to have this joy, Father, fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And in fact, Jesus mentioned that joy another four times between, verse, uh, between chapter 15 that I read from and chapter 17 that I read from. He mentions that joy in chapter 16 in verses 20, 21, 22, and 24. Where did he get it? He entrusted himself to God. God's word was all that mattered. The second of these three key, key things which Jesus committed himself to in committing himself to God, which enabled him to continue to experience such heavenly joy and peace and contentment instead of depression and discouragement and frustration in the face of what some were accusing him of was his focus on the promised reward for his continued commitment. His focus on the promised reward for his continued commitment. Listen, you want joy in your struggles? You want joy when people call you the son of Satan? You want joy in all trials? Here's one thing that'll help that immensely. Number one, as we said, stay committed to God's word. Number two, don't lose sight 
of God's promised reward for your, prom for your continued commitment. Jesus never took his eyes off of where his commitment to God was eventually going to get him. His going home to be with God was his focus that night. Did you know that? As we read through John 14, 15, 16, he kept coming back to his going home to be with the Father like it was a salve in a wound. He kept, he kept coming back to the fact that he was going to be with God. That was, that was, his, that was his focus where his continued commitment was going to get him God's promised reward. He kept bringing that going home to be with his father up as if it brought him great comfort and joy, even in the midst of, of the cross. John 14 and verse 2. I go to prepare a place. God, oh, what's his eyes on? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. John 14, verse 12. He said, I go to my father. John 14, verse 28, I'm going to the Father. John 16 and verse 10, I go to my Father. You suppose there's a point there? <laughs> over and over again, he's got his mind on where he's going. Not what he's going to have to go through to get there, but where he's going. His continued focus on God's promised reward for his continued commitment gave him joy and peace no matter what anybody else said or did, not even when they drove spikes into his wrist. Even later on in the garden, in Luke 22 and verse 43, you know, the, you know the text, that's where the angel comes to strengthen him. It's after that he begins to sweat as great drops of blood on the ground. You know the text. In my opinion, it's all it is, is my opinion, I don't, uh, first off, I don't know what the angel said because it doesn't say the angel said anything or what they said if they, or what the angel said if they said anything, so I, I don't know. But my opinion, that's all it is, is that that angel was there to remind him of home in heaven. Whether just a visual, whether the angel said, I don't know. But that angel would have been from heaven. We all agreed on that. Had to be an angel from heaven, right? He was an angel from somewhere else, right? An angel from heaven. So when somebody shows up from home, what does that remind you of? I remember several years ago, my family traveled down when we lived at my previous job, back when my mom was alive, my, my mom and, and my sister, my brother, they came down, and guess what we were reminded of for the four days they were with us? Life in New England. Especially, they had real funny accents. It was amazing how funny they sounded after us all being in Oklahoma only two years, but I digress. When somebody comes from home, they remind you of what home's like. And this angel came, and the angel strengthened him. And I, in my mind, understand that to mean that that angel reminded him again, even though he said, I go to the Father, I'm going to the Father, I go to the Father, I'm going to prepare a place. That angel just validated for him that he was going home. Did you know that even after his resurrection, Jesus was still focusing on his trip home? Did you know that? What did he tell Mary Magdalene in John 20 and verse 17? He said, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I'm going home. I'm convinced that's one of the reasons that Jesus maintained his joy and peace in the face of 
whatever happened to him on this earth. You know, Paul kept that goal of heaven ever before him too and it gave him joy. He says in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, he says, see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations wait me. Paul said, I am gonna be in the midst of some terrible struggles. There are gonna be people that were gonna accuse Paul of everything imaginable. But he says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy. See the joy? Joy in the middle of all those struggles. Why? Because Paul knew where he was going. He talks about finishing his race with joy, and he tells us later that that would involve him receiving the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, would give to him on that day, and not only to him, but all who loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul would add in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now listen to what Paul says. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And it's not even worth mentioning. And listen, if anybody had trials, Paul did, okay? All that group that he puts together and he talks about in the epistle to the Corinthians, he said, those aren't even people. Those aren't even, you know, worth mentioning compared to the glory. And, and when I think of that, how many, I don't want you to raise your hands, I want you to just think about it. How many of you, with inflation and everything being what it is, will still stoop over and pick up a penny on the ground in a parking lot? Probably not. A, to me, it's gotten to the point like a penny, no, I ain't stooping over for a penny. Now, if it's a $20 bill, I'll consider it, but a penny, no, it really ain't worth a whole lot. That penny really doesn't compare to $100. Now, if there's a $100 bill laying there, right, we'd all get down and pick it up, right? But a penny, probably not. Penny doesn't even compare to the $100 bill. Well, Paul said, struggles this earthly life, they're like, they really, not even worthy to mention in the same context. Compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us, Paul could have joy because he kept his eyes on where he was going, just like Jesus did. And it didn't matter what they did to him or said about him. Number three, the third and final of these three key elements which Jesus committed himself to in committing himself to God, and which helped him to experience joy and peace and contentment in the midst of all of this other stuff that was going on around him, and indeed in the midst of those who were falsely accusing him was, listen closely, his heartfelt prayers for the harshest of his accusers. That's a big one. His heartfelt prayers for the harshest of his accusers. Early on in his earthly ministry, Jesus had preached in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, you've heard that it, it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I preached on that text a few weeks back. And right at the end of his life, that was the beginning, but later on during his earthly ministry up near the end of it, we see Jesus practicing what he preached on an almost unimaginable level. Almost can't get our minds around it. I struggle to some days yet. 
They had arrested him. They had falsely accused him. They had scourged him. They had beaten him. They had slapped him. They had mocked him. He's so, got so much blood gone out of him, so weak he can't even carry his own cross. I don't know how many people would have recognized him the way he was probably beat up in the face. And they're leading him out to Calvary. And do you remember what Jesus did? Through probably bloodied and, and, and swollen lips. Do you remember what Jesus did? Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Please, God, forgive them. And I don't believe Jesus said it all in one sentence. Staggering, so hard he can't carry his cross, hard to get his breath, ripped open to his backbone. Probably lips swollen three times the size. That man was beaten to a pulp. And for the very ones who had him beaten that morning, Father, I'm begging you to forgive. They don't know what they're doing. Wow. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2.23, when reviled, he didn't revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but instead he entrusted or committed himself to God. Part of his being totally committed to God was his constantly praying for those who were persecuting him rather than returning or responding to them in kind. And did you know that in the Bible, that's kind of a trademark of faithful Christians? Did you know that? Jesus was their example, and we see others doing the same thing. Say, well, that's too hard to humanly do. No, there were some full humans who did. I realize Jesus is 100% human, 100% God, but there were some human beings who did the same thing. Look at me in Acts 7. Here was a deacon in the church. Recently selected deacon, actually. Stephen has preached a lesson. They didn't like Stephen's lesson. Starting in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now listen, that's not something you say, because this group ain't saying it. This group didn't want God's word and they weren't receiving it. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And, and this is literal stones ripping, I mean, this is just driving that poor man right into the dirt, ripping him open. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, we could stop right there and miss, miss so much. The scripture could have stopped right there, but the scripture didn't. God, by divine inspiration, put this next verse in. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Do you think Stephen was at peace? Do you think Stephen was at peace with God? Lord, I'm coming home. Look, I see Jesus. He said he had his eyes focused on, on, on Jesus, had his eyes focused on the reward. Number two. And number three, prayed for his persecutors. Apostle Paul did the same thing in 2 Timothy 4, if you'll turn there. Paul's facing the end of his life, a brutal end to a righteous life since he became a Christian. Look what he says in 2 Timothy 4. 
thoughts are running so fast here. I'm getting ahead of myself on where 2 Timothy is located. That's not good, Doug. 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18, look at what Paul said. He said, at my first dispense, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. He said, I had to stand alone for the emperor. May it not be charged against them. Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. I was delivered to the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for what? His heavenly kingdom. Paul said, I know where I'm going. My eyes are on heaven. God forgive those who didn't stand with me but forsook me when I stood before the emperor, he said. You see, the peace and the joy of all three of these men, Jesus, Stephen, and Paul, it's unmistakable to see their joy and their peace, even during the worst of their totally undeserved trials. The word of God clearly, undeniably, inarguably, teaches these following two great eternal truths of, as we've covered this morning. As a Christian, as a faithful, devoted to the word of God Christian, there may be times, and in fact, Jesus said there's going to be times. Peter confirmed there's going to be times. When you are living and walking and teaching and working in the light of God's word, there are going to be some who may reject and revile and accuse you of things that aren't right. And here's the bottom line, number two. And if that ever happens to you, you're gonna have two options. You can let what they say get you down, discourage you, depress you, maybe even destroy you. Or you can determine to enjoy that same daily joy and peace that Jesus did when they did those same things to him. And here's how you do it. Number one, staying committed to what God said no matter what anybody else says. Number two, constantly focusing on the promised reward for your continued faithfulness. And number three, constantly offering up your heartfelt and sincere prayers for the harshest of your accusers. Quick note on that before we close. Stephen, Acts 7. He prays that that sin not be held against them, right? He's praying for those who are stoning him, right? <clears throat> so would you say it's probably likely that included in that number is this young man named Saul of Tarsus who's holding the coats of the rock throwers? Would you think that he'd be included in that prayer? Lord, don't hold this sin against them. What happened to him? <laughs> I'm not saying it was totally a result of Stephen's prayer, but Saul of Tarsus eventually <laughs> turned it around, didn't he? Sure did. Your Bible would be a whole lot weighty if we didn't have what Saul of Tarsus, i.e. the Apostle Paul, wrote. Stephen prayed. And I realize there are other things that come into play there as well, but those are the three things. Listen. God has provided to you and I the perfect example. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 21 of how to handle 
all of those sorts of things. It is my hope and prayer that if you ever, any of us ever, face that, and instead of getting down and depressed and discouraged, we are able to find the peace and the joy and the comfort that Jesus Christ did by following his example, because that's the way it's done. God said you were called to this. The invitation this morning is open to anybody who would become a Christian, <clears throat> anybody who would obey the gospel by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. If you've already done that, though, you've heard the lesson this morning, and you're saying, I don't have my joy anymore. Like David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Maybe world's beat you up. Maybe it's gotten a little too hard, a little too discouraging, a little too depressing, especially if somebody has said anything to you they shouldn't have said or about you they shouldn't have said, and maybe you're just discouraged. I want to tell you, brethren, right now, you don't have to be discouraged. You keep on following God, you keep your eyes on heaven, and you pray for anybody who's done those things. But if you need the prayers of the church this morning to be stronger in those three things, I want you to leave here this morning in the joy of the Lord. I don't want you to leave here in anything but the joy of the Lord. You can have that. We'll pray for it right now if you need that as we stand and as we sing.